Welcome, friends. I'm Jared Santo, and this is The Changelog, deep conversations with the hackers, leaders, and innovators of the software world. Today, we have a special treat. Brian Cantrell, co-founder and CTO of Oxide Computer. You may know Brian from his work on D-Trace, his many years at Sun Microsystems, Oracle, and finally Joyent before starting Oxide. We dig deep into their company's mission, principles, and values. Hear how it all started with a VC's blank check that turned out to be anything but, and learn how Oxide's integrated approach to hardware and software sets them up to build servers as they should be. Quick mention of our partners at Fastly. Everything we do here at ChangeLog is fast because Fastly serves it up super fast everywhere on earth. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, Brian Cantrell and Oxide on the ChangeLog. Let's do this. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Square is the platform that sellers trust there is a massive opportunity for developers to support Square sellers by building apps for today's business needs. And I'm here with Shannon Skipper, head of developer relations at Square. Shannon, can you share some details about the opportunity for developers on the Square platform? Yeah, absolutely. So we have millions of sellers who have unique needs and Square has apps like our point of sale app, like our restaurants app, but there are so many different sellers, tuxedo shops, florists, who need specific solutions for their domain. And so we have a Node SDK written in TypeScript that allows you to access all of the backend APIs and SDKs that we use to power the billions of transactions that we do annually. And so there's this massive market of sellers who need help from developers. They either need a bespoke solution built for themselves on their own node stack, where they are working with Square Dashboard, working with Square Hardware, or with the e-com, you know, what you see is what you get builder. And they need one more thing. They need an additional build. And then finally, we have the app marketplace where you can make a node app and then distribute it so it can get in front of millions of sellers and be an option for them to adopt. Very cool. All right. If you want to learn more, head to developer.squareup.com to dive into the docs, APIs, SDKs, and to create your Square Developer account. Start developing on the platform Sellers Trust. Again, that's developer.squareup.com. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We are super excited to have you. We've had a lot of people say, talk about Oxide, get the Oxide people on. So we're happy to fulfill that demand. And joining me also today, it's not Adam. Uh, whose voice is that? It's Gerhard Lazu. What's up, Gerhard? Hey, I'll try to sound like Adam. I'll try to be the serious one. I'm not sure how well I'm going to pull it off. I will ask at least one Silicon Valley question. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just to be a bit more like Adam. But yeah, this is a nice uh, trio. I like it. Yeah, Adam on vacation this week. When you say Silicon Valley, are we talking HBO's Silicon Valley? Yes. We are. Adam is somewhat obsessed with the show, and he brings it up pretty much every episode at some point. And so that's why Garhart. Oh, you know, I got an Aviato t-shirt that my my 15-year-old gave me. I I feel like I should go put that on. (laughs) My... 
My my kids and I like to quote. I think HBO Silicon Valley is really extraordinary. It it merits uh, repeated watchings, and okay. I, I I would like to say that I personally reject those in Silicon Valley who say that they can't watch it because it's too real. That's what <laughs> satire is. Suck it up and watch the I, I think it's extraordinary so I, I'm, I'm glad funny that's enough it. that's what a lot of our guests say when Adam brings it up because he always inevitably asks me Jared do you watch it I'm like I watched season one and I kind of fell <laughs> off I thought it was really good but I don't watch it currently Adam unacceptable he turns to the guest and he says do you lo-? and they say it's too close to home no it, so. unacceptable that is I'm sorry that is that is, that is unacceptable <laughs> everybody needs to it needs to grow up and be able to I mean, if you cannot watch satire about yourself you are yeah. taking your life too seriously and yeah. the, the the satire is brilliant um i actually i had a, uh, a a boss of mine that i was imploring to watch silicon valley uh he and, and he retains conversation extraordinarily well hmm. so uh he inhaled it and he start, started dropping stone cold <laughs> Silicon Valley references. And so in particular, we had some consultants in. And if you've, not, if you've only seen season one, Jared, I'm not talking to you because you are not going to get this reference. <laughs> and there were uh, some consultants were consultants were in and they were doing a very cringy. They started doing a SWOT diagram. Mm-hmm. And again, my boss, the CEO of the company, kind of leans back and says, should we let Blaine die? <laughs> I'm sure that's funny. <laughs> and the consultant is like, what the what what oh, <laughs> what's going on? Like, who's Blaine? Who, and I'm like, holy god! And he, again, this this guy's got a very dry sense of humor, so he's totally happy to make a reference that no one else is getting in the room, and just let it sit there for a while. Because, oh, I let it absolutely sit there, and I was just like, well, this is okay. This is impressive. This is really impressive. And he, I mean, more or less ordered his direct reports. Like, I'm sorry, like I, in order for us to be able to communicate with one another, you're going to have to actually not just watch this but retain it. So. Mm. I, in fact, you, you mean, so just like with the news yesterday and Trump throwing his lunch across the room, that is a Gavin Belson scene. That is Gavin Belson destroying his own house in a rage. Anyway, you're talking right past me. I mean, I got the office down. I can do Seinfeld. I can do New Girl. But Silicon Valley, I'm just going to carry season one and then I'm going to peace out. I'm sorry. It's just what happens. You're making a huge mistake. You're making a huge mistake. <laughs> okay, enough Silicon Valley for now. Let's get into the meat of this conversation around what you and your team is up to at Oxide. You call it hardware with the software baked in for running infrastructure at scale. It's allegedly shipping 2022. Let's start right in the fields, though, as you guys put your principles right up front, your mission, your principles. This is a computer company, kind of like an old school computer company. But you guys like right on the front of the homepage. Here's our mission. Here's our principles. Can you lay out why that's important for you all and what they are and how that actually guides the company and what you guys are doing? Yeah, you bet. And I, yeah, so the, the origin of this actually is a, a talk that I, that I was asked to give by the Red Monk folks, by James Governor and Stephen O'Grady at Red Monk. And years ago, I, 2017, um, I was spun up in a, into a lather over Amazon's 14 quote-unquote leadership principles, I guess now 16. And I wanted to give my own as a, as a rebuttal. And James responded to that tweet saying, is that your Monktoberfest talk submission? I'm like, well, I guess it is. Hmm. So that, and coupled with kind of striking a contrast to Amazon, did force me to think about that. And I was kind of, it, I, we were going through an acquisition or had been acquired and really suffering under a under values mismatch. And 
part of the reason, honestly, I wanted to start a company is because I wanted to set the values from the cornerstone. And in, it's an important differentiation between values and principles. So mm-hmm. principles are absolutes. So principles are the things that we can all abide by that transcend culture, transcend company. And those are the, at Oxide, our principles are honesty, integrity, and decency. Those are our principles. That's what we expect everyone at, at Oxide to abide by at all times. These are irrefutable. Values, in contrast, are intention. Values are not necessarily unequivocal goods. They are things that, that can be good, but they, they need to be t- not taken to extreme. So, mm. you know, as an example of an Oxide value is, is rigor. Rigor is great. But rigor can also be taken to an extreme, right? Rigor can yeah. become paralyzing. If you, you can be too rigorous. That is, you know, if you insist on, you know, rigor, we are going to take rigor to an absolute and we are going to formally prove every program at this company. It's like, well, you are also not going to ship a product because you will be formally proving programs the entire time. That is, that is actually too rigorous. So rigor is intention with other values. Um, urgency is another oxide value. So the... And when we kind of sat down to figure out the values, I think the important thing for us was that the values were not aspirational. They were really trying to capture who we are. And, you know, I'm old enough to know myself pretty well to know what I wanted to build, what we wanted to build uh, as a company. And perhaps the, the idiosyncratic step is that we have asked Oxide employees to commit those values to memory. So there are, there are 15 values. Wow. That's a lot to remember. You know, it's actually not. So let's rip through the values. So courage, candor, curiosity, diversity, empathy, humor, responsibility, resilience, rigor, teamwork, thriftiness, transparency, urgency, and versatility. May have missed optimism. Uh, did I miss optimism? That's actually funny because optimism is what I feel with that. That's the Keenan Feldspar one that I missed. Yeah, so our obvious side of optimism. Thank you. That's hilarious. Yes. Well, I was reading them along as you, I was being impressed by how you hit them in order, even on the and then you missed them. Well, yeah, so. I don't want to memorize them off in order. Well, maybe I'm undermining my own point if I actually missed optimism. <laughs> See, it is harder than you think, isn't it? But, and part of the reason that, that we know that we can uh, commit these kinds of things to memory is it, that's just a, like an act of, of repetition, effectively. Sure. And, you know, I, uh, I lead the kids' scout troops and the, the kids' scout troop, and we ask you know, 10 and 11 year olds to memorize 12 points of a scout law and they're all able to do it. So yeah, um, I, I was pretty confident that adults could retain 15, although apparently, except for me, module <laughs> optimism. So I'll have to go work on that one. Well, you were optimistic about it. But then we use the, we use those values as a, a lens for everything at Oxide. We, we use it as a lens for hiring. We use it as a, so we, our approach to hiring is very different than other folks. We have a process that is very much upfront and written down. Um, my big belief is that, uh, I don't think this is controversial at all, uh, interviews are a terrible way to assess a person. <laughs> and, you know, we have this longstanding tradition of using oral exams to evaluate software engineers, which is, mm-hmm. doesn't work. It's not what they do. And, you know, I think that for me, the kind of a light went on relatively early in my career, you only have to have, you know, one of these where you have someone who's just super sharp in the interview and is an absolute disaster of an employee, not necessarily out of malice, but just out of what you've selected for in that interview is not what you actually want to select for to succeed in the role that you've got. And we actually, you know, 
one's ability to be quick on one's feet in a conversation, to be able to dominate a conversation, which is what an interview often selects for, just not a good match for what we actually do in software engineering. And what we do in software engineering is we spend time by ourselves thinking about problems and writing down solutions. That's what we actually do. Mm. And you know, there, there's a degree to which software engineering is a very solitary activity. You are, you are alone with the problem, ultimately. It's you staring at your code. Yeah. And how do we kind of capture that? And for us, it is by, I want to see a portfolio of your work. I want you to describe your work. I want you to write it down. What is the work that you're proud of? I want an analysis sample. So, you know, walk me through a, a hard problem that you've solved and, and the analysis that you applied when doing that. Uh, if you've given presentations, I definitely want to see those. So we kind of ask that's like a portfolio-based questions. Um, and then we go through the values-based questionnaire where we ask people some really basic questions. When have you been happiest in your career and why? Uh, when have you been unhappiest and why? Then we ask for – we take those oxide values and we ask you to, to select one of those values and describe how it's been particularly reflected in your career. Take one of those values and describe how it's been violated in your career and how you actually – how you dealt with that. Uh, and then we – one that I kind of threw on there at the last second that has been proven to be uh, kind of fascinating is take two of the oxide values and describe how they came in tension for you and how you resolved it. And you won't be too surprised to know that I would say, you know, good – at least thir a third of the people who apply to oxide – talk about rigor and urgency being intention, mm. and which I think is great. I mean, I, I never tire of reading that because rigor and urgency is kind of a very fundamental tension in software engineering. It's a tension that we navigate every day, all day. So I, I'm always happy when candidates want to describe that. There's, we are not necessarily looking for points for creativity on that one. Right. But then you, you add all of that up and those are what we call the materials. And then we, we hire through that. So as a result, like the values become really self-reinforcing and the, the values are really deeply held, deeply shared by folks at Oxide. And it has made navigating certain aspects of the company much, much easier. Like any group of people getting together to solve a problem, um, there, is there are differences of opinion, there, there, there's conflict. But navigating that conflict, navigating those differences is much easier when everyone can be really explicit about their own values. And it's a, there's been really, it's been really interesting to watch people say like, okay, wait a minute, you and I are disagreeing right now, but I realize that actually rigor and urgency are intention for us right now. And that actually I, we're, we're disagreeing because I am biased right now more towards urgency and you're biased more towards rigor. Hmm. And that allows for a much more meaningful conversation when you actually need to go resolve a dispute. In an yeah, it's actually providing like a shared lexicon inside the company. Totally shared lexicon. To have discussions. That's cool. And you have to be careful because like it's very important to me at Oxide that we don't weaponize those values, right? What you can't say is like we don't want to start, you know, rating one another on values because values are intention. They are – there's ambiguity there and that ambiguity is deliberate. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got to kind of balance that. But I think we have found that we've been able to navigate a lot together and I think we've been able to achieve an extraordinary amount as a very, very small team – in part because there are so many problems we don't have when we we built the company in this way that is so explicit about values. Mm. So did you have all of this right up front or has it grown out of you working there? Because you started it, what, back in 2019 or so? You've been working on it for a few years. Is Are these things like observed over time or did you have like a list, here's my list and I'm bringing it to the company to start with? 
So my big belief was, uh, remains, the values have to be set from the first cornerstone. You, you can't retroactively, and so we will never add values. There, there, will be, there will be 15 oxide values. Will you remove any? We will not remove any. <laughs> we will not remove any, despite whatever happened to optimism when I was uh, rattling them off. No, we will not remove any. We will not add any. Those are our fingerprint. And the reason that you, that you have to do that from the cornerstone is because you do have to use them as a lens for hiring. Because even by the time you have, you know, four, five, six, seven employees, there are going to be differences. And they're going to be, if you haven't used those values as a lens, you're going to have, I mean, you know, I guess you could, you know, could restructure your company around it. But I think it's, it's you're really hard pressed to do that. So for us, that is the kind of the, the foundation upon which the, the company is built. And I would say also, I mean, this comes out of having done it the wrong way for many, many years, right? Where... I was too implicit about values or I, it is an easy mistake to think that someone else shares your values when they in fact don't, or when you think you are broadcasting values when you in fact aren't. And then you end up in conflict with people that you don't understand. Like, why are we disagreeing so much about this? I'm, I'm very surprised by this conflict. It's like, oh yeah, that's because we actually didn't share those values all along. So it, it has been a really important way for us to build the company. Well, I understand uh, the importance of values, how fundamental they are and the principles and everything builds on top of them. Uh, not so good with names, already said that. I'm pretty sure I would stop after three or four, maybe five right. <laughs> on a good day. But the one thing that really resonates with me is stories. And one story that I think you are starting amazingly well is when you start talking about the soul of the machine. That is such an important construct. Uh, the last person that I remember saying that was Steve Jobs. He was all about the soul, about the beauty, the combination of hardware and software and what happens in between. So why is the soul of the machine important to you, Brian? Well, because, it, I mean, to me, it's the entire system, right? I mean, I think that hardware and software should be co-designed. We should be thinking of this holistically. And, you know, there are things, it's always troubling to me when I hear a Jobs uh, quote or speech that really deeply resonates because there's so much about jobs that I don't like and don't aspire to. Um, and I think that, that are kind of, uh, the unequivocal praise of jobs is a huge mistake because, um, the guy was a really difficult to deal with. I, anyone, I really recommend, by the way, Isaacson's book is, is fine, but the actual, the book on Steve jobs to read is Steve jobs and the next big thing by Randall Strauss, who's written, written about, uh, Steve at, about jobs at next it's written at the nadir of jo when Jobs is basically being left for dead. Mm -hmm. And it's a disaster story about Next. And I think the Isaacson bio does Jobs, I think, a disservice because the, the, there's so little on Next. I mean, he was at Next for what, what, 13 years, 15 years? I mean, he was at Next for well over a decade. Mm -hmm. It was a spectacular failure that was – that should have been a zero – and only wasn't a zero because Jean-Louis Gasset at B was felt that that B was worth more than Apple was willing to offer. If, if Jean-Louis Gasset had taken Apple's offer, Next is never purchased by Apple. Jobs is not returned to Apple. And we are in an alternate timeline and I've got no idea what happens. I mean, you're in like, a, yeah. you know, you're in like a, uh, all of a sudden you're in a Bradbury short story. I've got no idea what happens. Yeah, that make for good fan fiction or something, you know, take that other timeline, and make a story about it. 
but so but so Jobs gets a bunch of things. I, I don't I don't like the way he treated people. Um, and I think that honestly, the next experience probably we did talk, get hard to know. But I think it informed his return to Apple. Um, and I, I would like to believe that he treated people a little bit better. But the what I do very strongly resonate with is his aesthetic about the way that these machines are engineered and that we actually think of the entire system. And that's hard. It's hard to think of the entire system. Computers are really, really complicated, exceedingly complicated. I mean, it's. I, I feel like there's not a day that passes at Oxide that I don't think to myself, God, I wish I knew how computers work. I mean, I, I've been doing this for, you know, for whatever it is, I'll coming up on 30 years and I'm still learning how computers work because it is so wildly complicated and it's such a miracle that they work at all. So it's, it can be very hard to co-design hardware and software because we're actually demanding of people this incredible depth of understanding across Two disciplines that have a lot in common with one another and have this very important surface area of contact, but are in fact different. And there, you know, we, we software is not dictated by physical laws, really, and it, they are different. Um, software is not analog. The, the physical world is analog. Digital is a lie that we tell ourselves, and but it's very important, I think, to build those things together. And that means building a team in which you've got software that has reverence for hardware and hardware that has reverence for software. And you want uh, everyone to kind of bring their domain of expertise to the table, but also appreciate what the other domains bring. Uh, and that's that's a trick. That's hard to pull off. Jobs pulled it off. I think I did. I do think he pulled it off a couple of times. I think it has been pulled off a couple of times in history, certainly. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we believe that um, in oxide because. You know, there, are, there aren't as many opportunities, I think, to do that today. Ironically, the, the companies that do believe in that are our most outsized successes. So it's like, you know, what are the companies that believe in hardware software co-design? Like, I don't know, Apple, Tesla, Amazon, really, Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, and yet <laughs> it, it, it's still considered to be iconoclastic, which is kind of ridiculous to me. Uh, I mean, this is so obviously the right way to build a system. Mm-hmm. But the reason it's iconoclastic is honestly because it's hard. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it's really, really hard. It's much easier to focus on a narrower confine and to dismiss those that are taking on the entire system. It's hard. It's expensive. From a, you know, it, it, we had to raise a lot of money to go build logs. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems, your test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support and all of that needs to be 
you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially, you know, engineer organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they, you know, lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using, you know, old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of, you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you want to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. So why did you decide to do it? I mean, you say you kind of ask yourself that question uh, repetitively, but the very first time that you that you asked yourself the question and said, "Yeah, actually, I'm going to do it," it's like what was in the way? What was what was missing, or what was in the way of you doing what you want to do, where you currently were working or currently building? Yeah. Why decide to go ahead and raise the money, get the co-founders, and take that huge leap that you took? Well, so we were, uh, so I was at a cloud computing company. So I, was, I spent 14 years at Sun Microsystems, a, 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 which I have to clarify was a computer company because my now 10-year-old daughter thought it was a brewery in a very strange exchange we had at some point. It might be a brewery. There's lots of breweries out there. First of all, like, what, <laughs> what kid is thinking about breweries? What's going on? Anyway, so a now defunct computer company, but um, I... Um, so I spent 14 years at Sun. Um, Sun definitely did believe in that hardware software co-design, for sure. Certainly saw elements of it there. Um, after Sun was invaded by, by the Nazis, I, I fled. The, so Sun was purchased by Oracle in uh, 2010. Um, I went to a cloud computing company, Joint, um, and spent another nine years there. And it was at – so it was kind of interesting to be on both sides of this. And um, Joint was acquired by Samsung in 2016. And I and, and a colleague of mine that I had come to know at Joint, Steve Tuck, 
Steve and I had decided like we knew we wanted to start a company together. And we were kicking around some very bad ideas for things that we can go do. And as we were kind of kicking around bad ideas, uh, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe it's time to like start talking, start lighting up some venture capitalists. And, you know, I wanted to go back to my, I, I'd known VCs over the years, but needed to go kind of uh, remind myself of them and, and maybe get some lunches or whatever. And I went back to the mail from a VC, actually a pretty famous VC, and he and I would get lunch together with some regularity. And the last email that he had sent me was, hey, really enjoyed lunch. Just wanted to remind you that I will fund literally anything you put in front of me. Nice. Wow. Okay. So, Steve, you know, I got this mail and, you know, he's going to fund anything. They're going to fund anything we put in front of them. Maybe we should solve the problem that we actually want to solve. And the ideas that we'd been kicking around were, frankly, small ball. They were small problems that felt like startup size problems. But if we have got an opportunity to raise money for anything we wanted to go do, the problem that we actually wanted to go solve together was the one that we were suffering with every day inside of, of the walls of Joint and then Samsung, which is the infrastructure that we were building a cloud on out of commodity gear, Dell, HPE, Supermicro, had no end of problems, plagued by problems that we simply could not solve because we did not control that layer of the stack. And if you look at what Google and Facebook, now Meta, Microsoft, Amazon have done for themselves, the machines that they were building for themselves looked nothing like the machines that we were trying to build the cloud on. Mm. And I'm like, Steve, if we want to like, if we can actually get anything funded, we should go start a computer company. And I just remember, you know, vividly in Steve's office being like, do you think we could get like, wow, do you think we could? Like, it was almost like, do we have like permission to go do that? Because yeah, I mean, obviously we should go do that. Steve had spent, a, you know, a decade at, a prior to his decade at Joyant, had spent a decade at Dell. And so, you know, he and I, and it, coming up on the go-to-market side. So, I mean, like we, we felt like, uh, boy, if we, if, if we can go do this, like, let's go do it. The thing that's really funny is that we, so we, we kind of started to formulate this and started to reach out to VCs and talk about it. And what we learned pretty early is that, this is wildly contrarian, mm. but intriguing to VCs. In some ways, this is like the worst possible thing for VCs because VCs always want to know more, but it's, it requires a boldness that can be hard for venture capital to summon. So it's easy to have like long conversations that lead to ultimately like not getting across the finish line. <laughs> but folks were intrigued and great. So the irony is that talking to a bunch of different venture capitalists, getting a bunch of enthusiasm for it, and then finally went back to that VC that had sent the email that honestly sent us down the path for Oxide. And I call him up and I get like maybe a minute into kind of describing the problem that we were going to solve. He's like, wait a minute, Brian, I'm going to stop you. I see where this is going. Please tell me you're not going to start a computer company. I'm like, no, that's exactly what we're going to do. He's like, no, absolutely not. No, oh, no, no, fire. no. I want nothing to do with this. And I'm like, you know, you sent me this email saying you'd fund, quote, literally anything I put in front of you. He's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. Like, no, definitely not. Oh, wow. So uh, there was a, you know, the birth of Oxide is a kind of a lie from a VC, albeit a pretty harmless one. But, you know, wow. it got us to to dream a lot bigger. Uh, this VC, did he did emphatically pass on us so pass on us. is he in now did he eventually get in is he out no 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 
No, no, no. He's out, uh, which is fine. You think he's going to one back in later? You think he's going to be kicking himself five years from now? Um, You know, that's the fantasy of every entrepreneur is that um, – That's why I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, that would be – obviously, that would be great. That would be terrific. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You know, you try not to live your life to, to spite others. You know what I mean? Like, No, I, no, no. But you could say, I mean, is there room for him on your cap table eventually? I'm sure there's other rounds. Are you done raising money for good? We're not. We're, we're definitely not done. But there is, once you get beyond a certain stage, the early stage folks, are, are it's it, like the money is off the table. Their thesis is they need to be in earlier and get the larger multiples. So uh-huh. um, that larger multiple will be off. No, actually, we got uh, – honestly, it worked out great, honestly, from an investor perspective. We got – I, I guess when you're doing something bold, you will self-select for VCs that themselves are bold. Um, and we got the boldest and the best. So we got a Eclipse Ventures funded the company, and in particular, a venture capitalist named Pierre Lamond. Do you know who you know Pierre is? Pierre? No. Okay, so Pierre hired Andy Grove at Fairchild. Fairchild Semiconductor. Okay. So Going back. So Fairchild Semiconductor, this is the, the, the true birth of Silicon Valley, right? The, 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 the birth of Silicon Valley is Shockley Semiconductor, and then uh, the, the traders say leaving Shockley, going to Fairchild. And Fairchild was where you had this just incredible confluence of unbelievable talent. You've got, you've got Noyce, you've got Moore, you've got Andy Grove, incredible folks. And this is, this is Moore's law, right? This is where you have this incredible growth of the integrated circuit. And Fairchild just explodes. And they end up all leaving. Fairchild is actually a, a subsidiary of a of Fairchild Instrument and Camera, and all those folks end up leaving Fairchild and going to National Semiconductor, which is where Pierre went. Intel, all the the birth of Silicon Valley very much comes out of Fairchild. So Pierre was at Fairchild, and he has uh, he was at Sequoia for many years with Don Valentine, funded YouTube, and as you can imagine, you're like, wait a minute, how old is Pierre? Yeah, I'm just wondering because this seems like this goes back. Yep, it goes back. Pierre is. Certainly the oldest venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and he is absolutely the boldest. Wow. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that you've got someone who is, I mean, I think it's honestly, it's a little bit embarrassing for younger venture capitalists when you've got Pierre is so terrifically bold and they are so afraid of things. Um, so we're, it's been singular. It's been so great to have. And it, I think it's, it's highlighted for us the importance of having, when you're starting a new bold endeavor, having an investor who is, uh, who's fit for that endeavor. Having an investor who, who is as bold as the company itself mm. has been really, really important for us. If Wikipedia is right, it looks like he's in his 90s at this point. Yes. Wow. He, turn, he turns 92 in September. And this guy is razor sharp. He's great. And, and not just sharp. I mean, like, sharp is great, but, but like lots of people are sharp. It is the, 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 the courage that he's got, the boldness. Because what we're doing, again, we're, what we're doing is very bold. And it requires someone who shares that vision, and, but also understands that what it means to actually solve a hard problem. And what it means to solve a hard problem is things are not always going to go well. And if you're solving a hard problem, if things are going well, you need to push harder so that you are prepared when things aren't going well. And then you need to stand by, you need to stand by the technologists who are solving a hard problem. Yeah. And that is a 
a balance that is increasingly rare to strike. Jobs is very good at it, actually. I disagree with some of his of his people management methods, but the reality is that Jobs had teams that were able to birth very bold ideas into the universe because he understood that. He understood how to hit that balance of being both pushing people towards those mountains on the horizon and supporting them when they when when things aren't going well, which is which is a challenge. Speaking of big things, just to put this into perspective, we had the internet, we had the distributed version control system, Git from most. We had open source. There's something else coming. Next revolution. I think that's how big we're talking here. Like a really big moment. How do you see that, Brian? Because I know that you've been talking about this. I forget which talk exactly, but this is the scale that you're thinking at and aiming for. And that's why you need people that see the challenge that lies ahead for what it is, because it's really big and it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of people to see through. Yeah, I mean, so in terms, for sure. And so what we are doing is, I would say, bringing those revolutions to the computer itself. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing that if you look at the server side computer Mm. that is commercially available, it hasn't really evolved since the 90s. It is basically a personal computer. It is a it is a racked personal computer. Right. And that's embarrassing. You know, I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. And. What the approach that we're taking is true rack scale design. So, and I, I think that the, the, the revolution you may be referring to, I do think that that it, the uh, firmware, which is to say the proprietary software that sits between the hardware and and the system software that that, that runs upon it, that proprietary firmware has been a real problem. Mm-hmm. And what we, I don't necessarily view it as a, re, no, no, it's a revolution in its own right as so much as it is bringing the open source revolution to firmware. Um, we know that open source, open source is really, 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 really important. Yeah. Uh, and the older I get, the more I appreciate how deeply important it is. And it has changed everything that we do. I think that, that the, you know, when I was coming up in the 90s, it's kind of the era of the death march. Right. And there are all of these tales of, you know, Showstopper is a terrific one about the development of Windows NT. And if you read the development of proprietary software in the 90s, it feels otherworldly. And the reason it feels otherworldly is because there was no sharing of software, really. Everything was proprietary. Everything had to be either built from scratch or bought. And that really, that served as as an incredible impediment to innovation. Mm -hmm. And people are, I mean, software projects being canceled because they ended up being so large, the scope would expand, they would have to be canceled. I mean, there there are all these kind of knock-on effects. And we know that software has this incredible property that it endures, right? It's not a physical machine. It doesn't wear out. And when you get software right, if the software works for me, I can share it with you for free. There's there's no cost of goods sold. Right. It's it, it's information. I'm giving you like the answer to the homework. Right. It doesn't cost me anything. Mm-hmm. And that is remarkable because then you can build upon it and you can go solve a new problem that you couldn't solve previously. And I, I think that, you know, when it's all writ, I think that the development of open source is going to be viewed as a Gutenberg-esque moment. That software alone 
was actually software alone is like the written word, mm -hmm. extraordinarily powerful. But you actually need the printing press to have that kind of broad impact, broad societal impact you need to the printing press. And for software, open source is the printing press for software. Absent the printing press, the software's efficacy, software's benefits were limited. And it's not, a, it's not an accident. Every single one of these companies that, we, that one might talk about is built on open source components up, down, and all around. Our programming languages are all open source. Our databases are open source. Our systems are open source. And yes, obviously, people are doing their own proprietary software in there. But those open source components have proved essential. That revolution has not yet come to firmware. And that's, that's what we are doing as a, now that I would say that's a side effect of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. What we are doing, what we actually are, are doing is building a unified hardware software system, a rack scale machine that is, that, that represents the kind of machines that the hyperscalers build for themselves, for those folks who wish to run on-prem. And I think that's our, the other big belief is that Jeff Bezos is not going to own and operate every computer on the planet. So that, that, that's our other renegade belief that we're not all going to be running computing perpetuity. There you go. That sets you up in a nice David and Goliath uh, type scenario, so you can have that mission to beat Goliath. So, I'm wondering when you when you talk about open source uh, revolution, bringing that to firmware, bringing that to the metal, does Risk Five fit into this conversation at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I would like it to. I think we would like it to. Risk Five. So there are a couple, you know, some great elements of Risk Five. Um, I do love the instruction set. The instruction set is very thoughtfully designed, and and the fact that we can have open cores for Risk Five is great. So the fact that you can have your own, you know, blue spec core, what have you, Risk Five core, that's great. The challenge with Risk Five is that, and we've seen this happen again and again, where you have a, something that has good intentions. And then the, the, the kind of the tentacles of the existing way of doing things spread into it. And RISC-V has developed pretty proprietary firmware. For all of its openness, yes, the instruction set is open. The actual systems based on RISC-V have got a lot of proprietary elements. And indeed, they have recreated some of the most gallingly proprietary elements of x86. So things like... SMM. SMM is the system management mode. It is a mode that the processor enters when it wants to and does whatever it wants. And if you are accustomed to writing the operating system, I do OS kernel development, like the idea that there is some hidden mode that you can't see that gets to do whatever it wants in the machine, well, that operates across purposes. I mean, it's, that's a, a source of security vulnerabilities. That's a source mm -hmm. of performance problems. And those kind of management modes should not exist. Those are antithetical to hardware software co-design because those modes, what those modes are saying is that there is some software beneath the system software that is unseen that is actually controlling the computer. And it makes it very hard to build a unified system. Mm. We actually, of all the things we're doing at Oxide, and we're doing our own compute sled based on AMD Milan, we're doing our own switch based on Intel Tofino, we're doing our own cable backplane, we're doing our own operating system on the service processor, we're doing our own hypervisor. So we're doing all these very big, bold bets. Maybe the boldest is there is no AMI bias in our system. 
So AMI, American Megatrends Incorporated, which even the name drips from the 80s. This is a, <laughs> it does. This is a bias manufacturer from the 1980s that has somehow remained at the brainstem of server-side computing. And right now, x86 parts, be it Intel or AMD, have got AMI-authored code, proprietary AMI code, that you can't see, change, or operate that is part of that machine bring-up, that platform enablement. And it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem because it's, I mean, first of all, it's just bad. Um, I mean, it's just poorly written. It is at the very lowest layer of the stack. It has got no idea what's running above it. And so it will kind of hijack the machine to its own purposes. The bias will, in cooperation with SMM, with other aspects of the computer, will kind of do what it wants when it wants to. And that's not the way you build a reliable system. That is not the way you, that is, again, antithetical to this idea of unifying, of taking this hardware software co-design approach. So we have no UEFI in the system. So UEFI is a, that was what my colleague says, it's like MS-DOS circa 2099. <laughs> UEFI was designed as a mechanism actually originally to boot Itanium, but it is designed as, it's kind of like the worst of all worlds in that it requires these kind of interdependencies across layers of the stack, but it doesn't actually empower anything. So it, uh, it ends up being kind of the worst of all worlds. We have no UEFI in our system. We have no ACPI in our system. We do not need to have these layers that allow arbitrary other layers of software to run on top of them. We can actually design the whole system together. And then because our revenue model is based on hardware, because we're selling the whole system, we can make the entire thing open. And I think this is where we do diverge from a company like Apple. I love so much of what Apple does, but the secrecy with which Apple engages itself, I don't think is necessary. I think Apple would be an even more relevant company if they were a, a proponent of open source software. And they're really not. I mean, they kind of, they, they have been, they've kind of, you know, they've flirted with it at various times. Yeah. But they are not really an open company. It's like there's little bubbles inside of Apple that are. But they're absolutely bubbles. And then the bubbles will kind of persist for a while and then they'll be hit with a hammer. Um, and then they... <laughs> Um, I mean, Apple is a company that routinely goes backwards at open source, where things were open and are, are no longer open. And that's always a bad sign. Well, they're still working on that FaceTime open standard. You know, they're still getting that thing rolling. Right. Just like Steve Jobs said they would. And, and it, you know, it, it, that's, I think, to me, that's frustrating because it's like, look, Apple, like you are, you sell devices, like pretty expensive devices. You don't, you, you should be incentivized to get your software out. As you should, People should be able to see how these systems work, but it's just not the way... They believe their secrecy is at the core of their success, and I think that their their secrecy. I think that the core of their success is so deep, namely hardware software co-design, and so successful that even their ridiculous secrecy has been unable to kill it. Right. There are aspects of which I mean we're too far afield here, but there are aspects of Apple's strategy that I think have paid off with regards not necessarily to secrecy but to propriety. If that's how you say it, which is specifically I'm thinking of messages, iMessage. I think keeping that Apple device only has been a brilliant form of lock-in, which is not pro-consumer, but it's pro-Apple. That has worked out quite well, and I don't think they would be as relevant as they are today if you could get Apple messages, iMessage format, across any device. Because that's a lot of people that say that the only reason why they still use Apple is because of those stinking blue bubbles. That's right. I, uh, they certainly believe that. 
I'm not sure that's true or not, honestly. I'm not sure that's true or not, but they, they certainly believe that. So um, yeah. I, I, I actually think that the products are pretty good. And I think that they actually don't need to lock people in. I think they can actually allow people to make a – and people do. Like they, they make they, – they choose to, to use their products because they're good. Yeah, they do. And they're good because they have taken on the whole system. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons to believe that it delivers a better artifact. But so we are – we have no AMI bias. We, we believe that these layers of system software that are serving to make the machine look like a personal computer are dated. But they – require doing things that really have not been done before um, in terms of, of system enablement. I mean, a long way of getting back to kind of the RISC-V. The, so with RISC-V, I'm optimistic about elements of RISC-V, but it needs to not go down some of these same paths because there's this idea and that we certainly saw this happen in an ARM, in the ARM ecosystem, where it's like, we need to have UEFI to be successful. And you're like, no, no, stop. The x86 is successful despite UEFI, not because of it. And you want to actually allow people to use RISC-V, ARM, what have you, as a building block for a larger system, which means it needs to be truly open, it needs to be well-documented, and allow it to be used as a real building block. And that's what RISC-V needs to do. And, you know, some days they're doing it and some days they aren't. But uh, we don't have any RISC-V in our system yet. We definitely evaluated it for certain aspects, uh, for the hardware we were trust in particular, I think we probably will in the fullness of time, but right now it's all ARM for the embedded use cases and x86 for, for the for the CPU, for the CPU. I really like my hardware. I like my iMac Pro, the one that I'm using to record this on. It's been many years, love it. The new M1 Max, great machine, but I also appreciate very much my fanless AMD system, completely fanless, not even the PSU has a fan. So I'm wondering if I wanted to add an oxide rack to my hardware, like, first of all, would I do it? And how would I go even about it? Yeah, so, I, and I, I kind of really, I want to let people down easy because we, we've got <laughs> such a demographic that is following companies like, I can't wait to buy an Oxide Rack. I'm like, I don't know that you're going to be doing, I mean, do you have 15KW in your house? If so, why? Right. You know, th- this is really desperate. <laughs> That's right. so this is destined really for a data center. Now, I don't think there's any reason architecturally we couldn't make a much smaller rack, mm-hmm. but that's not what we're focused on. What we're yeah. focused on is building a rack for a data center. Actually, it's funny because like 15KW is our power budget for the rack, which is uh, arguably the worst of all worlds because for the hyperscalers, they're like, oh, 15KW feels very tight. Mm-hmm. Um, they're accustomed to being at you know, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40KW per rack. Um, and you talk to the enterprise folks and they're like, uh, 50, okay, maybe you're like, we're mainly more like 10, 12 KW per rack. But our belief is that by actually designing the whole rack together, we can optimize power across that rack. All of that said, it's not going to be destined for a home lab. So, uh-huh. uh, I don't think the, uh, and we actually, in terms of the fans, we, we are certainly not, not fanless. We very much have fans. We went through a great deal of effort to make the fans, uh, it, it drives me nuts when you plug in a Dell or Supermicro server. And the first thing it does is those fans go full tilt. Have you ever been around like a fan going, I mean, these are. I have one, a one U. <laughs> right. So you've got those little one-use screamers, right? And those are like 25,000 RPM drives, 20,000 RPM, uh, 20, RPM fans. And these are super, super loud. So I always view that as – it's so – and maybe this is my inner Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. It's just so inartful to have – so 
We have – so the geometry of our sleds are a little bit different. So they're higher. So they're 100 millimeters high, roughly 2OU, which is a little more than a 2RU. So it's like, it's like you know, a, a 2RU and change high and then half width. So – and that sled has got – that's a single the, the AMD socket on there. 16 Tims, um, and we've got 10, 10 NVMe drives. So the fans, the re- part of the reason that the geometry is different, and this is what Facebook had initially done um, with OCP, but we wanted to have larger fans. So we wanted to have 80 millimeter fans. We did not want to have, because when you have a larger fan, then you can go at lower RPMs. You can actually, they're just much more efficient and much more power efficient as well. But the the fans that we wanted uh, at zero percent PWM, which is to say at its like offsetting, it's at five thousand RPM, and five thousand RPM is loud. So we uh, worked with our partner. Um, one of the things that we do at Oxide that is actually a little bit different than certainly than I've done in previous lives. Uh, I don't really believe in dual sourcing everything. I really believe I want to I want to put rings on fingers. Um, so I want to find like the right partner. And I want to go deep with that partner. And actually, ironically, I mean, this is a belief that we had that was somewhat iconoclastic. Jobs did not have a dissimilar belief. Jobs believed the same thing. So for us, Sanyo Denki is our fan partner. We worked with Sanyo Denki to have a 0% PWM fan that's at 2,000 RPM. And that is great. Like, whisper quiet. So we've done – we've got all of these things to get – and so when the rack powers on, it's just going to whisper. So we get the first <laughs> rack together to do our compliance testing. Mm-hmm. And – and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like our firmware is wrong. I, you know, we, we, uh, we get this like right. blast of fans, but it's super short. And I'm like, what the hell was that? And when I realized like, oh, fuck's sake, it's the, the, the rectifiers. So we've got our, a power shelf. So we've got a DC bus part on the back. We've got a single power shelf that has rectifiers. Mm-hmm. The rectifiers have their own fans. It's like the only firmware in this system we did not write is the firmware that sits on the rectifier and that thing turns the fans on full uh, tilt. You're just like, oh man. Unfortunately, it's for it's it's very, very brief. It's nowhere near as bad as the Dell Supermicro uh, kind of experience. But it's just an example of how like you do want to – and maybe it's a bit of an aesthetic example. But actually, I believe that we are going to be – it's going to be very interesting to watch how this thing does at full speed because we're going to be able to run these fans – we do not need to run these fans if I think even 5,000 RPM to move the air that we need to move to actually keep the system adequately cool. I have a very important question. What happens when you shout at an oxide rack? <laughs> right. So that's a reference to a, uh, a video that I shot of Brendan Gregg many years ago when he and I worked together at Sun. And Brendan was uh, – we were trying to, to debug an outlier – a latency outlier – that we thought might be due to – well, I actually, I did back up a little bit. We were trying to figure out uh, with another colleague of mine, Eric Schrock, why we had a JBOD, just a bunch of disks, with a single latency outlier that we could not figure out. And we're trying to debug it. And it's like this thing is – only this drive is behaving badly. And we were about to go to lunch and we had this lab space that was next to the office – and Eric was like, well, let's go like, let's go look at the machine before we go to lunch. And I remember thinking like, that is the dumbest idea. Like, what are you going to go look at the, what are you going to look at the machine? It's like, is your hypothesis there's like a raccoon in the data center? Like, no, it's like, yeah, all right, let's Old go school bug. look at the machine. Sure. Why not? Actual bug. Right. Yeah. So we go in there and he pulls out the drive that is the, the, the problematic drive. 
And I just remember like my breath feeling like it was taken away because what we saw is that all four of the mounting screws in the bracket had worked their way out and the screws were gone. Mm. And it was sitting there vibing just on the connector. Mm. And this should have been one of those moments. I mean, it was one of those moments where you're just like, oh, the system's a lot more complicated than I realized. And, oh, wow, yeah, all of, like, this is where, you know, in terms of the education of why software hardware co-design matters, it's like, right. oh, yeah, right, vibe really matters. And in trying to reproduce those vibe issues, Brendan and I were alone in the office, I think it did during Christmas New Year's, if I recall correctly, this is years ago. And Brendan was trying various things to reproduce this, so we, we wanted to talk about kind of how we debugged it. And Brendan... Brennan comes running in and says, you've got to see this and runs out. And Brennan is just like not a person that ran all that frequently. So if like <laughs> Brennan's the kind of person like if this person's running, I'm running in the same direction. Like I don't even know what we're running about, but like I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to take my chance. It's worth checking out. Right. Yeah. And then he, what he showed me was uh, that he had figured out that he could scream at the drives and induce the latency outliers. And I remember thinking like, wow, oh, we should video this. So he had a camera there. I videoed it. Hi, I'm Brendan. We're here in the Fishworks lab. Sorry for screaming. It's very loud in here with the air conditioners and servers all around me. We just made an interesting discovery and we thought we'd show you straight away. What I'm going to do is not recommended. This is not supported. Do not try this at home. So me videoing him screaming at the drives is the second take. That's the second time I've ever seen it. You can kind of hear me laughing because I'm still like delighted by this. Mm-hmm. I put it up on what is then the very young YouTube. Again, I think this is in, the, in like Christmas 2008, if memory serves. So this is YouTube's only a couple years old. Yep. And I'm thinking like, this will be good. Like it'll get, get like, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred views or whatever. Uh, I haven't checked recently. It's definitely over a million. 1.8. Yeah, 1.8 million views. Right. So that's, yeah, that's, that's had quite a few views. My kids view me as my career as a failure because, you know, I, I could have been a YouTuber. I actually had the, um, I, I tried to explain to them that like, I'm a one trick pony. And by the way, it was like Brendan anyway. Brendan mm. was the talent. I just like, like, I just held the button down. You were the cameraman. I was the cameraman. <laughs> really? I did nothing. I'm more or less. Uh, and the, what was funny is that that video became more viewed than any content Sun had ever generated. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, I remember talking to some of the marketing folks being like, yeah, we didn't really ask permission on that one. We just kind of did it. And they're like, yeah, um, you know, it's all right. Uh, we just wish you had said Sun Microsystems in there at all. I'm like, did we forget to mention the name of the company? Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Ooh, sorry, that's awkward. Mm, backfire. Uh, but yeah, screaming at an oxide rack is going to be less interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's all NVMe drives. We don't have any spindles mm-hmm. in there, so it's all flash. Uh, I also would say that we have spent quite, again, we are big believers in learning from the failures that came in front of us. There have been lots of mechanical failures, actually, in server design. The, the, the mechanicals of, of server design require some care, and mm-hmm. uh, we've got an, a just absolutely aces mechanical team. Um, at a partner of ours, Benchmark Electronics, and they have done a terrific job on the mechanicals. And uh, screaming at this thing, I don't think it's going to do very much. I think this is going to, I, I think we're, we're mechanically pretty good shape. One test that's definitely green. The tick is green. If, if there is such a thing, it passed it. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency declare and mitigate incidents all from inside slack service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them and at the heart of it all incident run books they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated reliable repeatable sequences that run when you want you can create slack channels jira tickets zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident now your processes can be consistent and automatic the next step is to try it free small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all fire hydrant features included no credit card is required get started at firehydrant.io again firehydrant.io and by our friends at mongodb the makers of mongodb atlas the multi-cloud application data platform atlas provides an integrated suite of data services centered around a cloud database designed for scale speed and simplicity you can ditch the columns and the rows once and for all and switch to a database loved by millions for its flexible schema and query api when you're ready to launch, Atlas layers on production-grade resilience, performance, and security so you can confidently scale your project from zero to one. Atlas is a truly multi-cloud database. Deploy your data across multiple regions simultaneously on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Yes, you heard that right. Distribute your data across multiple cloud providers at the same time. The next step is to try Atlas free today. They have a free forever tier. Prove yourself and your team that the platform has everything you need. Head to mongodb.com slash changelog. Again, mongodb.com slash changelog. So despite Gerhard having secured his spot in line, we think that probably an oxide computer is not destined for his home lab. Mm. I mean, you'll probably sell him one just because why not? It's a sale, right? But yep. not target audience is not the enthusiast, hobbyist, home lab guy like Gerhard. Who then is your ideal customer? And to that ideal customer, can you tell him why? I mean, I'm looking at it, it looks cool, right? Like you guys got the aesthetic down, the black and the green and the, oh, and like it's, it's sexy, but I'm also not a guy who's gonna be acquiring racks upon racks right. for some sort of, server farm so can you to that person can you sell them on oxide versus just going back to their dell rep and saying hey give us a reorder of what we did last time yeah so uh well you, you should talk to some of those folks because those folks are in excruciating pain be uh, for a bunch of reasons one they are in uh, first of all they are all generally cloud aware so, um, you know, some, some folks say, oh, I love that Oxide is like, you're a contrarian cloud play. It's like, no, 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 we, we are not anti-cloud. Like, we are very, very pro-cloud. Elastic infrastructure is an incredibly important development. And we are very, very pro-elastic infrastructure, to be clear. Very pro-cloud computing. We just believe that it, it, you shouldn't have to rent all of it. 
We should we believe that you should be able to buy some of it because when you're renting compute, the Moore's Law dividend is going to your service provider, not to you. And we believe that there are folks who got compute at a scale where it makes sense to own a computer and own a rack of computers. So our the folks that we are targeting are folks that are already on-prem. They are on-prem for good reasons. Those reasons are they maybe security, maybe their latency. They're very often economic. AWS is expensive. The public cloud is expensive, especially when you're at a certain scale. And there's a certain scale you get to where it's like, actually, the, the public cloud is debilitatingly expensive. I can't even contemplate the cloud with this workload. So those folks, they are cloud aware. They're running their own hardware. And they are stuck on this personal computer that hasn't meaningfully moved in 20 years. And when they buy something from Dell or from HPE or from Micro, they then are responsible for putting the software on top of it. It's like you're not running Dell on it, but you're running Dell plus VMware. You're running Dell plus VMware plus Cisco plus software to manage the network. And you are going plus your distributed storage system, whenever that is. And whenever anything goes wrong, well, you assembled this thing, so this is on you. And every vendor points at everyone else. And the, and boy, I mean, how, and, you know, I live this. We were Dell customers. And I just remember, I mean, I've told Dell a lot of things over the years. One of them is never tell me you've never heard of this problem before. I'm not interested. It's not, it, all that is telling me is that your most technical customers are leaving Dell, which is actually what's happening. And so when you are having a problem, it's like, yeah, Dell is telling me like, I'm the only one seeing this. It's like, no, Dell is trying to gaslight you into believing that you're the only one seeing this because Dell itself does not have the depth of competence to actually understand what's going on on their systems. Because Dell, Dell in Supermicro, it's taking it to an even greater extreme of there's this self-fulfilling prophecy that this is commoditized garbage, so we're going to treat it as commoditized garbage. But it's actually really expensive. I mean, if you look at a racked out Dell 2U server, it's expensive. And you have we haven't even gotten the software on there yet. We haven't gotten VMware. We haven't gotten the software or, or OpenStack or whatever you end up putting on this thing to manage it. Mm -hmm. For Oxide, not only do we are we taking the fresh approach to hardware, but obviously it's software co-designed. Like we are actually developing the hypervisor, the control plane, what you get is an actual cloud in that rack. You hit API endpoints, you provision. You don't buy VMware to put it on this rack. Mm. So for our target demographic, they have been grossly underserved. In fact, the existing infrastructure providers have denied they even exist. They're like, well, every on-prem use case is going to the public cloud. It's like, I mean, these are like, no, I know about the public cloud. I understand the public cloud. I This workload needs to run on-prem for economic reasons. This is not a legacy workload. This is not going anywhere. And mm -hmm. to be told that you don't effectively don't exist and then be more or less treated that way, it's pretty aggravating. So, you know, our target demographic has kind of worked up. They're, they're, they've, they've kind of had enough. Actually, it was when we were doing due diligence for the initial VC investment and having VCs talk to our some of our first prospective customers. <laughs> Uh, they're angry. So one of the feedback, we got some of the feedback from some of the VCs, like, well, your, uh, your early customers are, uh, they're agitated. I'm like, yeah, they're pissed. Mm -hmm. They're pissed. And they're definitely pissed. Like, don't try to tell them that they don't exist. That's a mistake. Because th what they have seen is all of this innovation happening in all of these dimensions around them. 
And all of the innovation around Elastic Compute happening on the public cloud and where they need to run it, they have been entirely deprived. And so what they see in Oxide is oxygen. <laughs> um, someone who understands that, like, understands what I'm trying. And yes, I mean, the aesthetics are extraordinary. And the rack really is beautiful, I got to say. <laughs> the rack is it is so good looking. It is a really good looking rack. But it's much, what we're doing is much deeper than that. It's much deeper than the aesthetics. It is a, a true first principles approach that allows them to actually appreciate some of those advantages that folks have in the public cloud. And then they, they can go focus their energies on their business and on building the software and supporting the software, supporting the developers that they need to go build a better product, build a better service. And what we see is, you know, that our target demographic has really started on those those excellent enterprises, excellent Dell customers. The customers that we see on the horizon are those folks that are born in the cloud and then wake up to a business that is actually not sustainable because their margin is actually going to Amazon. And over the years, there have been many of these folks who have come up to the edge and like, we're going to go on, we're going to build our own data centers. And then they go... You know, they're naive about how bad the market is. And so they go in like, I don't know, I'm going to buy some Dell or whatever. It's like, oh, God, yeah, you're going to learn just how awful it is. And they end up vacillating, you know, going on-prem a little bit, but then staying on, on the cloud. And we believe that if you give those folks a real off-ramp where they can have the, the, the power of cloud computing, but with the economics of an on-prem data center, um, there's real demand for that on the, the, the these cloud-borne SaaS companies. So that's the future that we see. I would really like uh, open source developers to one day be end users of an Oxide rack, of an Oxide system, because I think there's a lot of power in the little person that has seen it all, that is so pissed at their internet connection, that is so annoyed why the Unify doesn't work with Microtech. Oh, I'm talking about myself. Totally. That, you know, <laughs> has tried super micros and it's like, they're okay, but seriously, like after 20 years, it's still the same. If I buy a new one, it's exactly like the old one, which I had. I think there's a lot to be said about where computers are going these days, especially the new, the latest Apple ones, everything system on a chip, you just replace the computer. There's no way you can replace a component. I mean, modularity seems to have gone out the window and I think it's the wrong direction. So I'm not removing my my place from um, when I registered interest. <laughs> I'm somewhere in your list, 2020, I think it was February or March. Yeah. I'm very curious about the pricing, like ballpark, like how many years do I have to save for one? Because I'm really, really determined to get it. Even if it has to live in the garage, that's okay. <laughs> we will we will find a solution, you know. But uh, uh, it's going to be a lot of allowance. I got to tell you. I mean, it's going to be okay. you're going to be. I mean, it's going to be price competitive, but not price competitive with the things that you're looking at, right? right? It is again. We are you're looking at what is more or less a personal computer, and what we are mm. really focusing at is an enterprise rack scale machine. Right. So the pricing of our, certainly of our initial product, I think, is probably going to be prohibitive. Fortunately for you. So where could I get one from, for example? Is yeah. there will there be a place where I can go and get a slice of this rack or what would that look like? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. So I, I think because I first of all, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I about the there's a a tremendous power in individuals, right? And mm -hmm. their ability to contribute. I mean, the thing, honestly, the thing that I would do, and I, do I have one? I guess I know I've got one here. So what I would do is if one wants to start playing around with oxide, start playing around with the, with these little single board computers, right? This, this is, uh, I think this is an F411. So this is an, an STM micro. 
Uh, this thing will run Hubris, which is our service. So this is running our service processor. This is not something you're going to run your arbitrary cloud workloads on. Mm -hmm. But it is actually really fun to – Hubris is our operating system that is our, I mean, appropriately named because we did our own operating system. All, Rust-based operating system, de novo Rust-based system. And these single board computers are incredibly cheap. For you know, for 20 bucks, you can get a computer that's more powerful than the desktop that I had when I came into the industry, right? And uh, much more powerful. You know, 400 megahertz part. You know, my first desktop as a professional was 143 megahertz UltraSpark. This is, you know, the and the fact that we are able to, to have these incredibly powerful single board computers, relatively powerful. We, we view them as underpowered than these kind of embedded use cases. But I think it's a great way to start exploring Oxide and start exploring some. And I, we love the fact that it's that it's all open source and it's all out there. And there's going to be some terrific mutations that are going to be fun and allow people to explore and contribute, um, not in the customer sense, but more in a community sense. So that I would say is probably mm -hmm. going to be going to be the vector unless you uh, unless you inherit a data center and and truly more money than you know what to do with. I like my options. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's open up the hubris and humility conversation a little bit. I'll have to go a little bit deeper. You say hubris is the operating system, well-named, uh, as you said, and easy to say, Gerhard, really easy to say, yeah. hubris. hubris. Yes. There you go. I've been practicing. <laughs> humility is the debugger, which is just also brilliantly named uh, as a pair. I love that kind of, that goes back to your, I guess, humor value. Do you want to uh, tell the folks exactly why you, you know, build your own OS and maybe like give hooks into, you know, a lot of our listeners are developers, tinkerers, hobbyists, uh, operating system folks, programming language enthusiasts. What could they potentially, you know, clone Hubris, the repo, and like what could they do with it or what could they learn or what could they help, et cetera? Yeah, so the, the, uh, there's a bunch of great resources out there, actually. First of all, I would steer anyone to my colleague Cliff Biffle, who coined the term, coined hubris for the operating system. He gave a great talk um, at the Open Source Firmware Conference that is really uh, just superlative. Must listen, uh, must watch talk, where he walks through why hubris. Why did we do our own operating system? Why did we not... Uh, and there are a bunch of reasons. And actually, it was fun to bring together some really different perspectives because uh, Cliff had done a ton of embedded work and a ton of Rust work and had a real belief of what an embedded operating system should be. And it's funny because coming from, you know, really the, really the more host CPU side, kind of industrial operating system kernel side, some of Cliff's beliefs that are the most iconoclastic are ones that feel like they shouldn't be iconoclastic at all. So in particular, hubris and most embedded operating systems do not use the memory protection unit that is present on most embedded microcontrollers. So they are effectively single address space applications. And that to me is crazy because as I mentioned, like these CPUs are more powerful than the desktop computer that I had when I came into the industry in 1996. And the idea that you would take a computer that's that powerful, that can do many different things, that can have true multitasking, and that you would run without memory protection. I mean, this is like, I mean, talk about something that the children don't appreciate. The, you know, when we were coming up, you, if you're running DOS and you're running a game or editing a file, it was not unusual for the machine to just reset. Yeah. 
And that is something that humanity has rightfully left behind because we actually have memory protection. Now, when your web browser does something that it shouldn't, it's an aw snap, right? And the and you maybe lost that that session or that program has crashed, but the rest of the mm-hmm. computer is intact. And of course it should be. That hasn't been true on the embedded side. And when we part of the real design center around Hubris was we want a system that is microkernel based, that that uses memory protection that is an all Rust-based system that really has Rust as a first-class citizen. And I, my first actually first job in the industry was working for a microkernel company, Qnix, Qnix Software Systems out of Canada, um, that later bought and sold a bunch of different times, was digested by BlackBerry at one point. I think that Harman, they've been in a bunch of places. But Qnix is an amazing operating system, microkernel-based operating system. I always felt that that was a right abstraction for a large cross-section of problems. So... Uh, it was really exciting to me when uh, we – and we we did our own system because we were evaluating others and realizing that nothing was doing what we wanted it to do. Um, and that's where the hubris comes from. Mm-hmm. My contribution, such as it was, was – you know, I, we talk about hardware software co-design. I'm also a big believer in system debugger co-design where you are debugging – you are developing the debugger as you're developing the system. And I have always found that that yields a much more robust system hmm. and gives you a much better platform to develop that system quickly. So as Cliff was starting in on Hubris, I was starting in on Humility, the debugger for, for Hubris. And that's been really fun. Um, I think we've taken the uh, – amazingly, this doesn't really happen in the embedded world. The, the kind of debugger system co-design does not really happen. I, the best of my knowledge are the only ones doing it. Most people are stuck using GDB yeah. and open OCD when they go to debug these things. And that is just galling. I mean, I was like – that. so not only do you have a system that, that has these wild uh, aspects of exposure because you've got a single system that's got no memory protection, then you're going to debug it with these terrible, terrible tools. And it's like, are you really expecting your firmware not to have the results that it has? I mean, are you really wondering why your Bluetooth stack is rebooting and why, oh, why all your devices are fighting with one another? It's because they are all on these systems that are these terribly antiquated software systems being debugged with terribly antiquated software tools and we're trying to get them to do something modern. So I think there is – I think Hubris is really important. I think that we're going to see a lot of use cases. What you know, Our use case is this embedded use case, rather the embedded use case in, in kind of a single board computer. But I think that there's going to be many other use cases. I should also say that the other beauty of Hubris is that the uh, – Hubris is not a general purpose system in that it is designed for that deeply embedded use case. It's not designed to load a new application that it has never seen before. So most operating, a general purpose operating system, I've got the ability to add a program that that operating system has never seen before and it will run it. And that's great on your desktop. That's great on a server. You don't want that on an embedded system. So when at build time, Hubris knows all of the tasks. That's statically known. And there are lots of things you can go do when you know all of the tasks that are ever going to run on a system. You don't need to dynamically allocate tasks and processes. So there's a lot that comes out of that. I think it's it's really uh, – it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's also been super valuable for us. Um, it's been unquestionably the right decision. 
Uh, and I think it's a good opportunity for folks to, you know, mess around because that is that we open sourced it um, when Cliff gave this talk at OSFC. It's already been used as a great blog entry uh, by Artemis Everfree on running hubris on a watch um, on, a, on a, a pine time, so which is fun. And, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff that's out there where people are starting to mess around and take it to different applications. We see a really broad use case for hubris out in that embedded world. I, I read a lot of blog posts. The one on hubris and humility, the one that you wrote, Brian, is really, really good. Uh, I'm sure that good writing uh, goes very well with a good software company, and there's so many things to that. But it's a good one to go, especially for enthusiasts that want to try this out. You mentioned the ST Nucleo yep. um, device that you know, people can buy and try this thing out. Uh, and that's just like to your point that you were saying earlier, you can try it out. You know, you don't have to wait for a rack to be shipped from Oxide, <laughs> even if you do have a multi-million allowance. Uh, the point being, it's, it's a great one to learn more about hubris, humility, and just start exploring a bit more of, of the Oxide blog posts because there's many good ones. And there's many good ones. And then we've got our entire control plane is also open source. So it also vector people into our, we're, we've done a Genovo Rust hypervisor mm. um, that we call Propolis. We've got a, our own control plane, which we felt we had a great name for, a Futurama reference, actually. Um, Omicron. Yes. It's like we were Omicron before Omicron was Omicron. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, I'm a Futurama fan. Okay. And yet, and yet, when Gerhard said this project's named Omicron, I thought to myself, that's a terrible name. They must have done it before the pandemic. Right. It's like, God, what, 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 um, so yeah, now Omicron was a Futurama reference and now it's like, well, now it's just like a big mess, I guess. Hopefully the, uh, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that the Omicron as a Futurama reference will outlive Omicron as a COVID reference in, in the cultural zeitgeist, but we'll see. We may have to be patient on that one. We'll see. It depends on how far that thing continues to spread, I guess, or how many yeah. variants are called Omicron, you know, cause it's just the one variant, right? Or just the one that I heard about. Well, Brian, we've taken up so much of your time. I'm sure, Gerhard, you have many more questions, but you're not going to be able to ask them today because this show is just about over. Brian, I will give you one chance to say whatever you'd like here. And then for Gerhard's follow-up, we might have... First of all, I have to rewatch all of Silicon Valley. So that's the first <laughs> yeah. thing. So it could I have be a to while. do that. And only then am I allowed to invite Brian. <laughs> Take notes, all right? Like, you, you know... I will. <laughs> Trust me. The show will be all about Silicon Valley, okay? <laughs> I, ooh, I love it. Um, yeah, if I, if I, you know, one thing to say, you know, I think that one thing that has been neat is that, that we've been doing for the last year and change or so. Um, we've been doing a weekly Twitter space, which has been a lot of fun. Okay. And I would encourage folks that we do it. Oxide and Friends is a weekly Twitter space. Um, and th that's been, uh, I've always wanted to be in a book club and I think we've kind of created it. Oh, nice. we had, it, it ends up being kind of an accidental book club to a degree we talk of, but we've got wide variety of topics there. Um, and that's been really interesting. I mean, I love podcasting as I love these kind of conversations, um, are great. It's also really fun when it get hard just your or point about like opening it up to like individuals and it's been you know, when you open yourself up to the internet, you're like, oh my God, like how much, how much of 4chan is going to show up versus the kind of the delightful aspects of the internet. Right. But you know what? Net, net, it has been really delightful and net, mm. net, it's been so much fun to hear from people that we, new voices, 
folks we haven't heard from, hear their perspective, their ideas. And I, I love it, actually. It's kind of like this it, this podcasting meets the AM radio dial, the old school mm. AM radio dial. Uh, it's a really interesting kind of mashup that I really enjoyed. So. so you all had a podcast or have a podcast yeah. as well. Now, has this Twitter space kind of usurped the podcast? It has kind of usurped it. Yeah. I mean, I love the podcast. I love On the Metal. It's been great. But as you know, from you know, it's a lot of work to, to – it's a lot of editing. It's a lot of – there's a lot of pre-work. You end up mm-hmm. with these things. You have these great conversations that you then have to kind of wait months to get out. And I think we really liked the Twitter spaces for that kind of that, that immediacy. It's been able to, we've been able to get a lot of the bang um, for much less of the buck. And right. then I think we've also been able to get these kind of new aspects to it. Although I, but I still, I love on the metal. People want to check out <laughs> on the metal. I love those conversations. Um, it was so much fun. So how do people like follow the Twitter? Is it just follow you on Twitter or how do they, is there a link to a Twitter space that we could put in the show notes? Yeah. I mean, if they definitely, if, if they follow me on Twitter, we, we, we link it out. Um, it's every Monday at 5 PM Pacific. Um, you can follow me, you can follow Oxide Computer on Twitter okay. and you, you can also follow my co-host Adam Leventhal. He's AHL, which is not the American Hockey League. Um, so that, you know, we were, Twitter was a customer of, of Suns early and uh, Adam realized he wanted to get in with his own. OG uh, initials, so nice. uh, AHL to follow him. And then we would love to have, again, we really enjoy having new voices on there. I think it's a great medium. As with many Twitter properties, you know, I am filled with both hope and disappointment. Uh, there's so much that could be done with it that I hope that they do go do with it. <laughs> yeah. It might just disappear. Who knows? I mean, they uh, they cloned, what was <sighs> it, stories? They cloned stories as a feature, and then they just said, meh, we're done with stories. But with at stories. least they're actually changing the product at this point. There were years where Twitter was stagnant. Like, there were zero changes to the product for probably, like, darn near a decade. So at least things are changing now. But, yeah, you never know when space is just might th- uh, fall out of the yeah, the cool kids club and be gone. I really hope not because I think social audio is a really interesting milieu. I think it's it is a different kind of, you know, it it doesn't replace anything. I think it adds to what we're already doing. It like I I I get love podcasts and will always listen to that, but I really love this aspect of getting people together for social audio. I think it's it's a lot of fun. Well, we appreciate you getting together with us for this conversation. Listener, all the links to all the things are in your show notes. There's lots of cool references on this one. So definitely check those out. Of course, you can find all of Oxide's things in there as well. Join the wait list if you have a small fortune and are ready to spend it on loud but sexy looking computers. Not loud, not loud. Only the power shelves just for a moment. Then it's all whisper quiet. Okay, for a moment of it, it's going to blow you away for a moment and then just disappear into nothingness, which is also nice. And Gerhard, thanks for sitting in for Adam. Thanks for, uh, you know, faking like you had Silicon Valley. It didn't work very well. That's okay. <laughs> I've learned my lesson. I need to be myself. <laughs> That's my takeaway from this. <laughs> just be myself, seriously. Be yourself. That's a great takeaway. That's a great takeaway. Well, you definitely brought the humor, which is one of Oxide's values, so you might fit in there as well. All right, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next time. That's the changelog for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Stick around for a brief after-show bonus. Gerhard asked Brian which character he identifies with the most from HBO's Silicon Valley, and insanity ensued. 
we are including this bonus for everyone, but our Changelog++ listeners get these kinds of goodies all the time. If you're not a member, check it out today at changelog.com slash plus plus. You can directly support our work, get closer to the metal with behind the scenes extras, save a bit of time by ditching the ads, and get a changelog sticker pack while you're at it. Speaking of Gerhard, he's been killing it with Ship It lately. Episode 59 featured Ben Johnson from Lightstream talking Postgres versus SQLite. I think people have a frustration with having so many dependencies out there. Mm-hmm. We're just everything always requires like just way too much. This is just way too much like headspace that everything takes up. And you're not actually like building your application. You're like reading docs for Redis or for some like some caching system or some load balancer or whatever. And like the idea of just like actually writing your app and like the database is there and it just works and it's super solid. But, you know, it's not, you know, I, th- mm-hmm. I think I looked up, I think in that blog post I wrote, you know, Postgres has like, I think their documentation is like three or 4,000 pages in a PDF. Mm-hmm. Like it's crazy, which is great. I mean, it's, you know, it does everything. But at the same time, it's a lot to keep in your head. So I think that's the really reason people love it. If they have an application that works for it, then, you know, it's it feels great to use. Continue listening in our Ship It feed or on the web at shipit.show slash 59. Oh, and Gerhard has a great guest lined up for episode 62. Can you guess who? What? Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for having our CDN covered, to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beat supply on swole, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. That is all for now, but we'll be back again on Monday for Changelog News. We'll talk to you then. I'm going to ask something that Adam would ask if he was here. Okay. Uh, Brian, who do you identify with from Silicon Valley? Is there a character that you identify with? Oh. <laughs> Don't tell me too many. It has to be one. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. Okay, so how do you want me to take it? So in terms of like the... Because if I'm going to be critical of myself, if I'm going to be mm. my own critic... Yes. Mm. Please do. Uh, this, is, I'm, I'm, this is really... I'm going to expose myself here. <laughs> Metaphorically, Keenan Feldspar. <sighs> do you, so, do you watch the show, Gerhard? It I hurt. did all of them, but it was too long ago. <laughs> and I forgot. You don't remember? Listen, if we're gonna if we're gonna roll, we gotta roll. No. So Keenan Feldspar is a now he's a, a bit of a composite character, and he's got mm-hmm. some Palmer Lucky in him, who I definitely don't identify with at all. But the thing about Keenan Feldspar is that I actually do. I mean, identify with maybe putting a bit too strong, but super enthusiastic, optimistic guy who puts together these teams that do these kind of extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. And to the, the the crew at Pied Piper, it feels like he's constantly like lucking into things, and um, it, it, everything is going to work out in the kind of the Keenan Feldspar. And I I have often imagined that if I were to criticize myself, I would criticize myself as being Keenan Feldspar. Hmm. Great with faces. Terrible with names. I don't think he was in season one. So was who he? Is he? <laughs>
Like, what's his face? Can he just? I, I've Googled him. I've looked at him up. I don't think he's in season one. I think I'm off the hook here. Uh, no, he's no, no. He's uh, this is Joel Osment playing Keenan Feldspar. Oh yeah. And what it's the 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 Keenan Vortex is that what they call it? Um, Dinesh and Guilfoyle call it the the, the Keenan Vortex. Yes, Adam, where are you, Adam? We need Adam, you. Yeah, who, <laughs> I need to find this. <laughs> Save us. Uh, the, honestly, like I uh, I wasn't gonna go here. I felt like you took me here, and then I'm like I'm by myself. Like, I'm the only one that's done the homework. Like you no, guys no, have no. done the homework. No, 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 no. I I forget. So he's not Dinesh. He's not like the main <laughs> characters. Who is he? I'm terrible with names. I really am. Great with faces. Like, look, if you wanted to open this one up, I mean, this was your question, Gerhard. You're asking me the question. It's on me. It's on me. It's on me. Like, what am I supposed to say? Like, Dinesh or Guilfoyle? I'm supposed to give you, like, am I supposed to be like Richard Hendricks now? No, no, no. Whoever you want. Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's go. Uh, Main characters. No. You know, I I have considered, uh, because these, the folks that are in, there are a lot of great character actors that are in Mm -hmm. HBO Silicon Valley. And I wanted to have like so you can get the actor who plays Ron mm-hmm. LaFlum, to, who's the lawyer. Mm-hmm. You could have him like join in all hands for like three thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, be like, and now our new general counsel and have Ron LaFlum in there. That's kind of a nice uh, side gig for them. You think you have the royalties, but now it's like a kind of IRL royalty where people will just hire you to come to their party and basically be that character for you. Yeah, that is that is the way that once you reach, there's a certain critical mass of celebrity that once you have attained, you can effectively live off your own fat for the rest of your life by doing these kinds of things. By you know, and even if you're a you know a C-list celebrity, you can go like open a car wash for a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Well, that cameo app's made it even easier now. They can actually just sit in their house and just hold up their phone and just say hi to people or like you know whatever it is and charge 400, 500 bucks a pop. You can do those 30 seconds, a couple hundred bucks. You know, why leave bed? Just live off the fat. And I'd pay for it. I'd pay for it and I would get these obscure Silicon Valley character actors, but neither of you two would appreciate it, honestly. I don't know. (laughs) No, I would have totally lost. Totally lost. I would. Faces, please. <laughs> what you wanted to do? Hold up a picture of who he identifies with, Gerhard? Hubris. I mean, that that was like you know a word which I haven't used. It just shows you great with faces. Well, maybe we will see. Not very we good with see. names. We already know that. 